You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. We are walking through a, a book called Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's really a fascinating book. Uh, there's not much like it in the Bible. It, it's really a very unique, uh, unique book. And, and last week we looked at a portion of Scripture that uh, really reflected what I just prayed, that our times are in God's hands, that, that God is the God of all time and God is the God of all seasons, and our lives go through various seasons uh, that He directs and ordains for us. And so the result of that we saw last week from the text was that we are to trust in the Lord. And we've been going through um, Ecclesiastes and finding that Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the preacher or Ecclesiastes, that he has been surveying all the world uh, using his immense knowledge to sort of evaluate the purpose of life. And uh, today he's going to look at two themes in his search. He's going to be looking at injustice and oppression. So here's what I want to talk about today, trusting God in a world of injustice. Trusting God in a world of injustice. That's what he describes in the passage that we are about to read. So we're going to read from Ecclesiastes 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, it'll be on the screen, or you can, uh, hopefully you're still bringing your little uh, journal Bibles, uh, little books of Ecclesiastes. You can read along in there if you prefer. Let's listen to God's Word. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward uh, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Well, Ecclesiastes doesn't disappoint. Every week it is sober. Uh, he has sobering things to say. This is perhaps one of the most sobering passages we're going to uh, read in the entire book and it's interesting, he talks about injustice and then death, and then he talks about oppression, and in the middle of it, he has this sentence about uh, we are to enjoy our work, 
that we are to be joyful. There actually, he uses the word rejoice, uh, that we are to rejoice in our work. And I think the big idea of what he's talking about here is that the only way to live joyfully in an unjust world is to trust God to bring justice in his time. It's the only way to live joyfully in an unjust world, is to trust that God, in fact, will bring justice, for we live under the sun. And that's, that's been a phrase he's used throughout to talk about the time we live in, which is a, a fallen world. We're not in uh, the new heavens and the new earth. We are in a fallen world, and uh, so the reality is that a fallen world is often an unjust world. So I want to talk about two things that he talks about, injustice under the sun, or we could say in the fallen world, and oppression uh, in, under the sun, which is in a fallen world. So Solomon begins by looking around, verse 16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. Uh, so there was, no, there was a lack of justice, there was injustice, which he calls wickedness. Now, we innately, we innately respond to injustice. From the earliest ages, uh, if we're treated unjustly, we respond. If you take a toddler and you tell the toddler to give up uh, his or her toy to their sibling, you, you will find them saying, that's not fair. Why? Oh, the classic, because I had it first. That's not fair. A complaining, I'm being treated unjustly. I don't know if you're watching March Madness. I've been watching it. But just watch, and, and when you watch, watch for this. Now what I'm about to share about injustice, watch any time a player is called for a foul. The, the response is always the same. It's like, what? What? I mean, this is unbelievable. Are you serious? I saw a guy actually had a, in it yesterday, a shocked face. He's like, what? And he went, he put his hand over his mouth as if to say, ref, how dare you besmirch my fair name by accusing me of breaking a rule. I would never break a rule. But there's just this, I did not do it. This is not fair. And while we all can react to trivial things like a toy or a game, uh, he is reacting to something far more serious. He's talking about something that is wicked. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. So he's talking about a certain location. What is the place, what he calls the place of justice? He's talking about the place where justice is administered. He's speaking of the courts. Speaking of the place where the guilty, where we expect that the guilty would be punished and the innocent would be exonerated. Yet, he says in the courts, there is wickedness instead of righteousness. The place you should find justice, you find wickedness. So what's going on? Well, we see this kind of thing throughout Scripture that uh, judges are taking bribes. Liars are given credibility in court. Favoritism is shown to people who have status or those perhaps who have connections with authority, maybe even connections with the judge. And he looks around and he says, it's all a wicked mess. Now, while our court system may be more uh, just than what Ecclesiastes is experiencing at his time, we too live under the sun in a system that does not provide perfect justice. 
Uh, this is the world that we live in, and that's what he sees. And we certainly see this, the same kind of thing at times. The world is not perfect in dispensing justice. One of the most moving films I've seen in recent years is the movie Just Mercy. It's a story of uh, civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson, played by Michael B. Jordan in the movie, who, after graduating from Harvard Law School, sort of shuns opportunities to work in some prestigious uh, law firm, and he shuns those and instead decides to go down south and set up shop in Alabama. And uh, he, he starts something called the Equal Justice Initiative, and his goal is to advocate for those, especially the poor, who have had uh, poor representation uh, in, in court and uh, have uh, been unjustly um, found guilty of a crime. And so the, the movie centers around his work with a death row inmate whose name is Walter McMillan, played by Jamie Foxx. He is a black man who was convicted in 1988 for the murder of a white teenage girl. And the entire case is, 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 is shown in the movie and uh, told in, through the book as well. The entire case is based on the testimony of one person uh, who accuses McMillan of committing the crime. This guy's a felon who has his sentence lowered for, by pointing the finger at uh, McMillan. So he's, uh, it's obviously dubious. Uh, McMillan had been with his extended family during the time uh, that the murder occurred. So there was dozens of black witnesses, but they were all ignored. And the entire case was based uh, upon the uh, accusation of this one man. His wife, Amelia, sums up, uh, Armelia rather, sums up her own despair. This, uh, this quote's from the book. She says this, I feel like they done put me on death row too. What do we tell these children about how to stay out of harm's way when you can be at your own house, minding your own business, surrounded by your entire family, and they still put some murder on you that you ain't do and send you to death row? Well, he gets off, the movie and the story, he obviously gets off, and justice is, justice is served. But you hear the angst of her language. She's saying, how do we even explain the world? How do we explain the world we live in to our children, to the next generation, when you can just be in your home doing your own business with all your family vouching for you being there, and yet you end up on death row in a trial that only took two days? before they put him, uh, found him guilty. We all value Lady Justice. You, you know the, the statue, the, the symbol, Lady Justice. She's blindfolded. She has scales in her right hand. She has a sword in her left hand. The blindfold represents impartiality. The scales represent fairness. And the sword represents quick, quick and uh, qu final justice. But the preacher says, when I'm looking around in my world, I don't see Lady Justice. And so how does he respond? Well, the way you would expect him to respond, if you've read Ecclesiastes so far, you would expect him to say this, I looked and in the place of justice, there was wickedness. It is all vanity. It is all a striving after wind. 
But that's not what he says. Nothing like that. Verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So Solomon looks to the future and he sees that God will be the one who will judge the righteous and the wicked. And he says there's actually a time for every matter and for every work, which refers to the poem we read last week. And God, in his time, will issue perfect judgment, perfect justice. God will bring a justice that is righteous and fair and objective. And in essence, he says, we need to trust that reality to make any sense out of the world that we live in. We need to trust that reality. I mean, th- this, th- this is what he's talking about is significant. The, the story I told you uh, f- from Alabama is significant. We all face even much lesser situations of injustice in our lives. No, no parent is perfectly just. No boss is perfectly just. No pastor is perfectly just. No one in a place of authority, no matter how hard they try, is perfectly just. Only God is perfectly just. So even in the small injustices that we experience on a daily basis from a teacher at school or a boss, whatever it might be, to the significant injustices that happen in life that we see around us, uh, in all cases, we must say that God is the one who will bring justice. Now, this doesn't mean that we aren't to act and that we aren't to do our best in whatever role and authority we have. We are called to be just people, and we are to speak up for those who experience injustice, to do what we can to protect the defenseless or to come to the aid of those who are marginalized and and perhaps don't have access to getting a fair shake. That, That is in the Scripture. But that's a different sermon from a different text. This passage and this text is saying that when we can't manufacture justice and when we don't see justice, our ultimate hope is in the God who will bring justice, who will, as Ecclesiastes said, he will judge the righteous and the wicked, verse 17, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. There's coming a day knowing that he will make all things right, and it is the fact that he will make all things right that enables us to press on in life even when we face minor or significant injustices. It's knowing that day is coming that we seek to work to bring a just world and just relationships and the relationships that we have, but we ultimately look for that day. In one of his more popular, popularly quoted statements. Martin Luther King said the the following about uh, pressing on with the hope of future justice. He said, when our days become dreary with low hovering clouds of despair, and when our nights become darker than a thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark days into bright tomorrows. Let us realize, he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc, he's saying that the progression 
of the moral universe, sort of the, the line of development, the storyline, the plot line, the, the, like the arc of a story, the, the plot line of the universe, the moral universe, it's long, but it bends to justice. Ultimately, that one day there will be complete justice. God will bring complete justice. And in days when it is difficult for any of us, those are days when we celebrate the fact that our God is judge and that he will have his way. Right will be done. He will judge the wicked and the righteous. And before God's throne, we know throughout the Bible, before God's throne, there will be no favoritism. There will be no looking the other way. Uh, There will be no forgetting. There will be no one going free on a technicality, no hung juries. Those in authority who act wickedly will stand before the great judge and give an account. In his book uh, that we have on Ecclesiastes out in our resource center, (coughs) David Gibson says the following. He says, will there ever be a time for justice The answer is yes. God will retrieve every single injustice and every single time and every single activity. Every single deed that has ever broken his holy law and tarnished his beautiful world and damaged his image bearers. Every one of those moments will be answerable to God. Every tear and every sighing sorrow for my wrongs, whether through things I have done or had done to me, Each one will be sought out by the God who is perfect justice, truth, mercy, and love. Now, if we could could sort of zoom out and look at the book as a whole beyond these couple of verses right here, uh, we realize that this is not just a warning to corrupt judges that he sees or a corrupt (coughs) system uh, for administering justice around him. It's more than that. It's a warning to us all that this is how the book ends. Ecclesiastes ends with the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the last verse of the book. God will bring into judgment everything, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes never gets far away. Whatever he's talking about, whatever subjects he's talking about, he never gets far away from death and from judgment. Because the reality is we only begin to live uh, well. We only begin to live the way God intends us to live when we think about that day of our death and we think about our judgment. And we see he goes from this statement about judgment immediately to talk about death. Verse 18, he said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has an advantage uh, over the beast for all is vanity. Now, he's not saying that, that humans and animals are equal um, you know, in our design. He's not saying that animals are image bearers of God as humans are. What, what he's saying is that when we think about death, we realize we have a common destiny with all living things. Just like an animal, we all die. God gives us a life. He directs the seasons of our lives, as we've been reading. He determines how long we will live. And like an animal, we will all return to dust. 
And so he says this death, this is, well, this is a test <coughs> to see if we get it. Caleb, could I ask you, could you bring me my water? I, don't, I didn't make it up here with water, and I'm trying to go on and be a trooper, and it's getting very dry up in here. So, uh, okay. It's allergy season, and I'm, I'm a little, little, little uh, affected up here. So, um, death is a test, he's saying. A death's a test to see if we all get it. Death gives us a proper perspective on life, knowing that we will die, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, that we are answerable to God. Knowing that God will sort everything out in the end, how should we live? And this is almost surprising to me. He says, verse 22, so I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So it's, he's saying, so there, there is still, he's not speaking in such a way that there's such a trepidation that every moment of every life is to be filled with dread. There must be some comfort in all this because he says we are to rejoice basically in what we do on a daily basis. God has called us to rejoice in what we do. And I think what's going on here is he's saying, yes, we should do what we can to bring justice, but we should all be, be realistic and say we live under the sun. We live in a fallen world, and we're not going to be able to solve all problems, and there's not going to be total justice in this world, but there will be total justice one day. So in trust in the Lord, confidence in the Lord, trusting Him and seeking to do what I can uh, as a follower of Christ, seeking to do what I can to bring justice, I am to take joy daily in what I do. I'm to take joy in my work, uh, enjoy it, rejoice in it, that we can fulfill our callings in life confident that God the judge will judge in his time, that our life is in his hands, that the life of those around us is in his hands, and that ultimately he is the one who will sort out everyone in his universe. That is not my job. That is what he will do. And as believers in Jesus, we rest in the truth that Jesus has taken judgment in our place. Now, Solomon uh, doesn't, hasn't experienced that, doesn't know what we know. We're this side of the cross. He's the other side of the cross and resurrection. But we know from reading the New Testament that Jesus comes as the one who dies in our place and takes our judgment. So that through faith in Christ... Even more now, we should be called to seek to bring justice where we can, but even more now, we know that before the Lord, we have been declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. Jesus became a curse. Jesus took our sins upon himself. And so the reality is that in many ways, we could say that our judgment moved from the future to the past. This is unbelievable. Our judgment took place on the cross. It was our sins that were placed on him that he died to take our punishment so that when we believe in him, we are forgiven, and even better than that, we're declared righteous, the scripture says. So this is good news that, yes, we will face judgment, but we will not, there will be no question for the person in Christ of whether we are welcomed before God or whether we are condemned. There's no question about guilty or not guilty. Uh, that one has been answered. We are declared righteous in him. And so even more than what Ecclesiastes says, we can go take joy in our calling because we have received uh, Christ who took the judgment for us. The next thing he talks about, and this is the final point, 
There's injustice under the sun, and then there is oppression under the sun as well. He says, I saw, verse 1 of chapter 4, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comfort, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. He, he sees a scene that is absolutely heartbreaking. He sees the scene of people being oppressed. Now, this is probably broader. He's talking about a broader category here. He's not just talking about the place of justice. He's not talking about judicial injustice. He's talking about a broader category. He's speaking of the way people are oppressed in the world. Often when the Bible talks about oppression, it talks about people, well, like it says here, people in power. That's the language the Bible uses. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. People who have some power, and they leverage that power to take oftentimes its financial advantage of others. And I'm sure there's other kinds of oppression, but you see the Bible talking about that a fair bit. The prophets in the Bible speak strongly to God's people about issues of justice and oppression. And we see people all over the world today that experience that are exploited for, for financial gain by someone who has power over them. We think about uh, workers who are paid subsistent wages in foreign factories. We think about people who are enslaved or trafficked for sex. So that's people in power use them uh, to make money off of them. We think about people who are discriminated against all over the world uh, because of their race or because of their gender or because of their age even. We see wicked dictators throughout history that have committed genocide, uh, killing countless people. This is the kind of oppression that Ecclesiastes could look at the world and see those kinds of things happening. We see the elderly, uh, sadly, are scammed for financial advantage from someone, or they are um, mistreated in some way. Women are beaten, children abused throughout the world. Christians are persecuted for their faith. People have their goods stolen from them. Oftentimes in many societies, a wealthy few have all the power and everyone else is just barely surviving. And what makes it all worse, he says, is that I saw no one there to comfort the person who had been oppressed and was suffering and was struggling. No one to comfort them, he says. And then he makes this really amazing, uh, dreadful statement. He just says, hey, I, I thought those who've never been born, they're better off than those who are oppressed. The list goes on and on, obviously, about oppressions under the sun. You just have to look at world history or look at the world today, and you'll see that it's, it's common. And while there's oppression in our country, perhaps we haven't suffered, uh, well not perhaps, we have not suffered like many places, many people who have suffered throughout the world. Those perhaps the, the oppressions are greater you know, throughout history and in other places than they are where we are. However, it still does happen. People are still taken advantage of and harmed so that someone else can get gain off, off of them. How do we respond to this passage? It's really sober, isn't it? How, how do we respond to something like this, a passage that isn't filled with hope, except there is hope underlining it because he says, look, 
rejoice in your work. So go on about your business, knowing all of this, go on about your business with joy. There's some underlying hope there. Uh, this sobering passage, it may hit you very personally. You know, you may be a, a person who you've been treated uh, unjustly, and maybe it's derailed the course of your life. Something's happened that sort of derailed uh, your direction in life. Or maybe you have been, or someone you love has been uh, oppressed or exploited in some way that, so that someone else could uh, take financial gain from you. Maybe someone has uh, over you in some position of authority has taken advantage of you in some way. And that is grievous. And I would want to communicate to you this morning that Jesus knows your situation. Jesus is with you, and, and Jesus knows what it's like to be oppressed. That's what the Bible tells us. Isaiah 53 says he was Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That passage in Isaiah 53 that talks about the coming one, uh, it, it says that he, who, he took our sins that uh, he bore stripes for our healing. But it also says that he was oppressed, um, that he was afflicted, and he did that for us, ultimately. First Peter 2 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That when Jesus was oppressed, when Jesus was afflicted, when Jesus was abused, when Jesus was killed, uh, crucified on our behalf, that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is very much the heart of the passage we're in today. That Jesus, in his moment of mistreatment, and it is the greatest mistreatment, the greatest injustice ever done, that the perfect one would be killed like a common criminal. The one who never broke the law, who was perfect in word, thought, and deed, was humiliated and subjected, debased to crucifixion, to mocking, to beating, that he did all of this for us. He was oppressed for us. He suffered for us. He willingly endured injustice for us. The perfect man who never sinned, crucified for us. He understands what it's like for you or for your loved one who's experienced anything like this. He understands because he has experienced this. He took the punishment that was due to each of us. God will judge the righteous and the guilty. And so Jesus entrusted himself to the God, the Father of that justice. The passage makes clear that we will all die and God will judge us. And so there's an opportunity for every one of us today to to turn from our sin and to believe in Jesus and to have assurance that on that day of justice that God will declare us righteous. The only assurance to being declared righteous on that day of justice is to be in Christ. That is the only assurance. Left to our own, every one of us has failed. Every one of us has broken God's law. And you may think about historic oppressors. You may think about historic injustice. You may think about uh, people who've abused their power and killed others and uh, raped others and stolen from others. And you may, you may say, well, I'm not bad like that. 
And maybe you're not, but according to God's holy law, we are all sinners in word and thought and deed. And we will all be in the category of guilty. But there is one amazing way that we can be in the category of the righteous. And that is by trusting that when Jesus died, he took our sin and that he was buried and raised the third day to defeat the power of sin so that if we believe in him, the Bible says we are justified, which is a picture of standing before a judge and being declared not guilty. And we all can have that by trusting Jesus. And I wonder if there's some, you've been coming, you've been listening to the stuff about Ecclesiastes, you've been coming to church, uh, but, but you know in your own heart that you're not really a follower of Christ, that you've never really believed, never really committed yourself to him. And, and this book is sobering. And what I would want you to get from this text is your death is sure and judgment to follow is sure and grace is offered to you today offered to me, offered to all of us. There is grace in Jesus, and we receive that grace by not just intellectually acknowledging this, but by turning from our sin and turning to receive Christ as our Savior. And he not only gives us the power, he not only forgives us and gives us new life, but he gives us the power to follow him, to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, to look to Christ and to trust him in our own, to, in our own situation, to be able to forgive others and to be, over, be able to uh, follow him in our lives. If you are a Christian and you have suffered some kind of injustice, God wants to give you the power through the Holy Spirit as well to forgive, to not stay bound, to not stay chained in bitterness and unforgiveness. I wonder if there's some folks here that, it's, that in your life you say, that's me, it's eating me up. I can't forget what that person did, what that previous boss did, what that coach did, what a parent did, what someone in authority did to me, and it changed me, it affected me, and, and I, I can't get past that. And, and the only way really to get past that is for the Lord to change our hearts so that we are able to entrust that person, that situation, to entrust it all to God who judges justly. To say, in this life, there may not be justice for this situation or that one, but God in his timing will bring justice. And there's a peace, and I'm not saying it's easy. I'm perhaps making it sound that. I, I don't think it's easy. But I believe God's desire for all of us is to walk in a freedom so that we can fulfill verse 22. I saw there's nothing better than rejoicing in his work, for that is his lot that I can experience joy in my life. The only way to live joyfully in a world of injustice is to trust the God of judgment who will bring justice to all. The story of Scripture, the arc of the storyline of the Bible absolutely bends towards justice. It lands with the just God bringing justice to all. He is coming. He is coming, and we are to entrust our hearts to Him the one who will bring justice on that day. In Christ, knowing that we are declared righteous and, and freely releasing and forgiving those who've sinned against us in perhaps grievous ways, entrusting them to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. Let's entrust all, all this to him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.